and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern, and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Demeter Tasic, author of Paramilitarism in the Balkans, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, and Albania, 1917-1924, to published July 2020 by Oxford University Press. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you. It's my, it's my pleasure. So first, how did you get into studying and writing on this subject? Well, I was always, you know, interested in paramilitarism, especially in, in, you know, the Balkan type of paramilitarism, because ever since my, my master thesis, when I dealt with, with, uh, military rule, Yugoslav military rule, right after the Great War in, uh, in, what is now known as Northern Macedonia and Kosovo and Metohia. Uh, besides, besides a lot of data about the military, there were numerous, you know, accounts of mil- paramilitary participate, paramilitaries participating in these events. So when I started to, you know, when I finished this, you know, the, the master thesis and I published a book here in Serbia about the military rule, my, at that time, mentor, he encouraged me to try to deal with this subject uh, after afterwards, mm-hmm. and uh, everything came, uh, you know, everything came, to, you know, to its fulfillment after I met John Paul Newman from and uh, Robert Gerbart from University College Dublin Center for War Studies, mm-hmm. and one small conference which we had there in 2011. So we, in a way, you know, they also encouraged me to do to do the same topic. So I went with it, and uh, I spent after that I spent two years in Dublin as a Irish Research Council fellow, postdoctoral fellow, mm-hmm. and uh, and I worked on this topic, and uh, now it's finally coming out as a, as a book. Yeah. So why do you frame it between 1917 and 1924? You know, the middle of World War One till. Six years after. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, when I was, you know, making this kind of talk, especially you know after our seminar classes in Dublin, you know, both uh, both uh, Robert Gerhardt and and uh, John Horn and also John von Neumann, they encouraged me to go with this framework because it fits in this overall, you know, image of this really important events which were just started by the Great War. Especially this export of revolutions, because I also deal with this uh, returnees from the October from the, from Russia, you know, which came to to the Balkans to to, the, to the, especially to Yugoslavia and Bulgaria, which brought their own ideas and their own uh, ways of dealing with with revolution. And uh, this kind of combination of this uh, immediate post Great War uncertainties and and the great uh, and, and um, you can say you can. You can actually say it war after the war because all over Eastern Europe you had this crisis, civil wars, unrests, uh, paramilitary violence, uh, you know, and everything. So in a way, it fits into this framework. And 1917 was taken because of one important event of, from the Balkan history, because in 1917, in at that time occupied Serbia, occupied by Austro-Hungarians and Bulgarians, happened the, the only uprising at that time in, in Europe against the occupiers, which was mostly performed by the experienced Serbian paramilitaries. Mm-hmm. 
But in the, in the same time, the Bulgarians who wanted to quell this uprising used their own paramilitaries because of their expertise in, you can say, counter-insurgency counter operations. Mm -hmm. And we, and I decided to finish with 1924 because it was the last of the series of coup d'etats in, in Albania, after which Albania, in a way, entered this kind of stable phase because prior to that it was just another coup following another coup. And again, the paramilitaries or, or this kind of irregular forces also played a very, very, very uh, important role in, in these events. And, you know, in this time happened the major, you can say, clash between the newly founded Yugoslav state and internal Macedonian revolutionary organization who wanted to continue its uh, struggle for the autonomous or independent or uh, annexed Macedonia, annexed Macedonia, Macedonia enacted to Bulgaria. So in a way, this, this was kind of very turbulent, turbulent period. Meanwhile, also in Bulgaria, you can, you can say you have a golden age of their paramilitarism because may, all major actors on the, their political scenes practically had their own paramilitary component. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the end, the, even, even the ruling party, the ruling party of uh, Bulgarian Agrarian National, National Union had to create some kind of, of uh, paramilitary organization because the state was in deep crisis and the state institutions were, were not functioning. Mm -hmm. And uh, practically as a result of this happened the uh, 1923 coup d'etat in, in, uh, in Bulgaria in June, when actually the joint operation of one very strong paramilitary organization, the Military League or Officers League, mm -hmm. performed, uh, performed the coup d'etat together with some opposition parties. So let's uh, d define paramilitary for me. You know, where does it fall within, you know, the military and police framework that a country might have? Well, uh, in this particular case, uh, we are take we are talking about uh, something which takes upon it. Uh, you can say that the 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 role of the military, and uh, for example the. Robert Gerhardt and John Horn, in their masterpiece of, of this period of Vorast, uh, they call it a military or quasi-military organization and practices that either expanded or replaced the activities of conventional military formations. Hmm. And in, in that sense, this Balkan example fits perfectly. The only difference is that difference with the European context is that in the Balkans, you already had a genuine paramilitary culture and tradition originated way before the First World War. In the rest of the Europe, the paramilitarization was the result of the Great War. Mm. But in the Balkans, you already have functioning paramilitaries. So, for example, in Bulgaria, in Greece, in Serbia, later in Yugoslavia, so you already had this kind of very, very well-organized paramilitary structures, which, as I mentioned, took some expanded or replaced the activities of conventional military formations. They were either seen as some, someone who will project uh, the state uh, visions or state projects into the new territories. In this particular case, it was the Ottoman Empire before the First World War, because these paramilitary organizations met on the ground of Macedonia, at that time Ottoman province, for which they actually fought for mm -hmm. among themselves. So that that is practically, and after the sec, after the First World War, in in for example, in the case of Yugoslavia, the paramilitaries were seen as convenient tool to assist 
police or gendarmerie in there when it was in the, you know, because in the Yugoslav case, you have the state which was uh, started to function. Very diverse, very, uh, very complex state which, which united former provinces of Austria-Hungary, uh, former independent kingdoms of Serbia, Montenegro, and former Ottoman provinces, so, for example, Macedonia. So in that in that sense, paramilitaries were used as auxiliaries or you know this kind of support, but it didn't turn turned out well because of practices they which they demonstrated in their in their actions you know which were actually which can only be qualified as paramilitary violence. Mm-hmm. So practically, with the paramilitaries, usually in the Balkan context, at least goes the paramilitary violence. When I think of paramilitary, and incorrectly or not, um, I imagine infantry types, you know, with motorized vehicles, but lacking in anything like artillery or or armor or aircraft or anything, you know, just basically a bunch of um, guys moving around through cities and countryside to to do whatever they're, they're doing. Yeah, definitely. In this case, not even motorized. They were, they were like, like typical infantry. Uh, the Balkan paramilitaries, uh, pity we cannot see the pictures, but you know they were quite uh, you know quite a you know seen to to be seen. You know they they really liked to show off with their with their gears. You know they they used to wear these bandoliers. You know like I don't know how like Mexican you know bandits. You know this, this type this type of vision. But they were they were usually used to dress half. Uh, national costumes, half military uniform. They had their own, you can say, you know, hierarchy. Uh, their bands were relatively small. It used to be called cheta. And uh, in the Balkan terminology, cheta or chetovanya is actually uh, means uh, guerrilla warfare. Hmm. And as they, you guessed rightly, you know, they used to roam around the countryside mostly in towns where there were police. Even you know during the Ottoman time, you know they could not show show up, and because they were armed and they were not allowed to wear out you know to wear arms. But in the country countryside, they they used to have you know substantial support. They they used to build their own networks. You know uh, they used to you know they were able to to walk uh, long distances per day, and they. Traveled lightly because they didn't have any kind of, you know, logistics. You know, they they depended a lot of a lot on civilian population mm-hmm. for food, for provisions, and everything. But they built some kind of uh, during during the especially from the from the nineteen nineteen o three onwards. You know, they built some kind of very specific paramilitary culture and paramilitary tradition, which from time to time used to reappear. Because the memory of their endeavors and their names of their leaders was very strong, that used to reappear, even all the way to the wars of the of Yugoslav succession in the 1990s. Hmm. You know, many of these local, you know, paramilitaries on all sides in this in this war conflict used to drive, you know, to to, to tap on this this rich tradition. You know, at least in at least in their names, appearances. Uh, you know, like names of their units, uh, ranks, uh, even in some, even in some, some part, in some parts, even you know, they try to mimic the uniforms, you know, and mm-hmm. the, the appearance. So they had really strong, strong uh, uh, impact 
on the on the on the local uh, local situation local circumstances for a very very long time. The golden age of their you know you can say of the Balkan paramilitarism was from the beginning of the 20th century until the mid 20s when they slowly start to to you know to to leave the this uh, this you know that you can say polit you know the scene because of states which were created on this space started to get more organized and they didn't need them need them anymore you know mm-hmm. i'm speaking with demeter tasic author of paramilitarism in the balkans you can find more information on his page on academia.edu if you like this podcast so far please subscribe to it and rate it if you can Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. So in this period of the Balkans, the makeup of, of these paramilitary forces, was it former soldiers or was it more men who wanted to be militaristic but but didn't join any military forces? Or was there moonlighting where some would be in the military and sometimes be in the paramilitary? The, the last, the last, it was the problem, the question. Everything everything started in, so by the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th. And... Uh, for example, in, in especially in, in Bulgaria and Serbia and in Greece at that time, you had a lot of um, young uh, officers and non-commissioned officers with very strong nationalist ideas and feelings, and they wanted to do to do something more. And they actually met together, you know, with this with this with these locals, in, especially in Macedonia. In, in Macedonia, you had a lot of locals who wanted to in a way, get, you know, get out, in a, literally get out of the Ottoman Empire. So basically, in terms of training, organization, everything, uh, everything dependent, dependent on these trained individuals. But rank and file of, of, of these old movements were the locals. The locals who, as Macedonians, you know, who in one way or another decided to take one of these three national affiliations, Greek, Serbian, or Bulgarian. I didn't cover the Greek case because, in a way, it goes out of, of, of the equation from after, after the First World War because of certain developments in, in Greece. And, uh, but for these two, for the Serbians and Bulgarians, as I said, the rank and file were mostly locals. Also, in Serbian camps, they were the case there were a lot of individuals coming from other provinces of the Balkans, especially those from Austria-Hungary, former Austria-Hungary, who had also strong national feelings, national affections. You know, who wanted also to contribute to this whole endeavor because already during the initial years, the so-called Chetniks or Komitajis were very well known. You know, they, they became very well popular and they attracted a lot of these uh, individuals from all over the all, all over the, the the Balkans, you know, into the ranks. So you can say that they were kind of combination of these three groups, uh, you know. But the, for one for one thing is sure, the rank and file in majority of the rank and file they were local. Hmm. You can say you can even say local peasants, you know, 
how much fighting did they do during this period and how much how many casualties did they suffer well it is kind of difficult to say i i give some 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 figures there which are official figures coming from official for example yugoslav reports of yugoslav police at that time and you you cannot you can say that there were around several hundreds on both sides but the the one thing which is uh, in this case uh, especially problematic that there were a lot of civilian casualties hmm. because uh, their their actions were also uh, directed towards the civilians in a way of maybe you know intimidation or maybe punishing the those who decided to change sides or th those who decided to left the ranks of the organization because uh, in this particular case paramilitarism was not only sheer you know fighting force it really depended on their organization on the local level so uh, practically they had to as they used to say organize villages and and, and whole areas around their idea and to appoint a local you know civilian leaders who are who were responsible for supporting their action in a way of providing them with supplies uh, information uh, giving them you know guides if they if someone uh, if they were not familiar with the terrain or you know uh, information about the movements of of uh, before the First World War, it were the Ottoman troops uh, or police. After the First World War, it was the most Yugoslav police and gendarmerie. So, in a way, a lot of the organization was seen as much broader. This this is where we come to the another level of paramilitarization, the, the the level of rule, and because it showed up, it demonstrated that the though that paramilitary organization who was able to um, perform better rule certain area would uh, would be considered considered as you know like winning winning party for example in particular in this particular case during the 20s and the beginning of 30s internal macedonian revolutionary organization managed to practically rule autonomously in one in one entire part of the bulgarian territory of the bulgarian state it is the south west of bulgaria <laughs> known as petrich county Practically, the state power there was very, very weak, and the organization managed to create practically the state within the state. They had their own uh, judiciary, they had their own taxation, they had, they, they had their own militia. Taxation was very important for the, you know, because all of these men had to be paid, you know, mm -hmm. because, you know, they had to, you know, live of something. Also, they had to support their families because while they while they these people are away, their families would uh, would you know lack any kind of you know uh, income. So this was 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 very very well organized uh, you know uh, endeavor in a way. It's not it's not a simple showing off with weapons. So in a way, uh, we can say that it exceeded. I think that it exceeded the traditional notion of paramilitarism or as just being, you know, some guys with weapons, you know, you know, going all over the place, doing nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and as, as for the casualties, sometimes it's very difficult, it was very difficult to determine casualties, for example, after many encounters, you know, with, for example, Yugoslav police forces and army, they could not find... Um, 
for example, the dead bodies, because they used to extract even their, their dead ones, you know, from, mm. from the, because, you know, to avoid, uh, to avoid the humiliation, to avoid, uh, you know, this kind of, um, press, you know, uh, media coverage, uh, which was, uh, which was substantial at that time, you know, every, every success in, in this struggle against the, this uh, paramilitaries on the ground was reported. Uh, you know, in, in Yugoslav press at the time. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it was very difficult. There was there were several cases of taking prisoners, but those were only incident because you know, in certain cases, it happened that in order to avoid being captured, these guys used to commit suicide. You know, it was mm -hmm. so you know this kind of so strong the message they wanted to convey. Mm -hmm. And the same was on the Serbian side. In a way, before the First World War, uh, after the First World War. Because they had their own state, they, uh, you know, they they didn't have to hide. They turned on more to the to to be like organization of veterans, mm. uh, which actually fought for for the benefits of its members. And occasionally, occasionally they used to support some of their members used to support you know police in, in the army mm. at that time. So this question might sound a little naive, but both within these organizations and in the areas they controlled, was there any democracy of any kind, or was it just totalitarian, you know, authoritarian rule within and without, or the goal also? In a way, you can say that there there was, in a way, democracy. Uh, in what way? So when they, when they used to create uh, this field organization, uh, it was most uh, the most important thing was that uh, entire village swore an allegiance to the cause, and uh, when they do that, uh, immediately they would create some kind of not governing, not ruling, but governing bodies of uh, you know like village elders, you know, or people who are responsible for this, or people who are responsible for that, and the only thing which was uh, you can you can say the on the part of of, of the thing was authoritarian was the, actually the rule of the leader of the band leader his his you know word was uh, and his commands were uh, you know not to be you know judged uh, you know they have to be executed mm -hmm. but but these guys uh, used to, to used to drive their their position onto the merits and and to their own personal you can say bravery valor and everything so in mm -hmm. a way they follow up these uh, Balkan traditions from the from the Ottoman rule from the earlier period, where you you had these bands of uh, brigands who were fighting against the Ottoman rule. But in the same times, they were all also simple. You know, sometimes they were you could not distinguish between you know cattle rustlers and 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 freedom fighters. You know, hmm. you know in the Balkans especially, they were they used to be mixed uh, and. In in terms of uh, in terms of this tradition, they they drive they used to you know to, to rely on this tradition because they used to choose their own leader you know so uh, from time to time when for example their leader was killed or died whatever they used to choose it and that, so there was democracy they used to choose among themselves you know mm -hmm. the the best of them and interestingly the military. Official military in the 20s used to, especially in Yugoslavia, they used to research about this whole idea and they started to create um, official 
manuals for the guerrilla warfare because they considered it as very important, you know, as, as a part of as a part of ruling doctrine. And in, in the late 20s, early 30s, the Yugoslav army adopted uh, the regulation for military do- uh, for to, for the guerrilla warfare mm-hmm. instruction. Actually, sorry, instruction for guerrilla warfare, where a very important part, almost half of it, uh, speaks about the personality of which is needed, personality of leader of the office. There's uh, personality is needed for the successful guerrilla warfare mm-hmm. because it goes beyond simple, you know, military hierarchy. You know, you need to inspire people with your own example. You need to you need to show uh, moral values. You need to demonstrate willingness for sacrifice, etc., etc., etc. Because your leadership is something which will attract support and 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 guarantee you support of of the locals not just you know simple military hierarchy or the fact that you are captain or major or lieutenant whatever mm-hmm. so it's kind of kind of very interesting how the, the official military uh, recognized this this potential you know uh, especially in Yugoslav case which existed within this uh, paramilitary because in the balkans you practically have to Put an equation mark between paramilitarism and guerrilla warfare, hmm. unlike else, elsewhere in Europe, for example, in Germany, for example, or I don't know where you know had, you had this fry course and everything, you know. But in the Balkans, you the paramilitarism and paramilitary is practically equal with with the guerrilla warfare. Before the Ottoman Empire broke up, uh, what policies and actions did they take that both encouraged the growth of these paramilitaries, but also kept them from growing too large? Interesting question. Uh, uh, in in a way, they showed to be very unsuccessful because they were not able to, to, to stop the growth of them. Mm-hmm. Be- because practically all of these paramilitaries were supported by the official state from at that time. So, for example, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Greece. So these people used to to be you they used to send these bands across the border early April May and they would they would stay on the ground as they used to say until the late I don't know November and they would withdraw across back to the border. So practically it was not it was very difficult to, to, to fight them. Mm-hmm. Then you had you had a corruption, a lot of corruption on the local level. Then you had the pressure of the inter- at that time international community, uh, which had their own representatives on the ground, uh, especially in Macedonia, because after 1903 there was there were reforms in Macedonia, for example, because Ottoman Empire was obliged to make reform uh, within its uh, police force, and uh, each great power got one section of Macedonia. In which it over overseed overlooked the reforms of the police, and at the end, practically the the rise of the military strength of the Balkan nations, uh, these Balkan Christian nations, so Bulgaria, Montenegro, Serbia, and Greece, uh, practically, and the Balkan Wars ended this whole endeavor. What we can say is that practically Ottoman uh, security forces were always one one step behind and they always had to intervene after some incidents happened mm-hmm. what was but what was very interesting the 
all of these three groups, Bulgarian, Serbian, and, and, uh, and Greek, what they had one common rule is that they should avoid conflict with Ottoman forces for any cost, because their main enemy and the main opponent at that time were the rival organizations. Mm. So the Bulgarian or Greek, in, in Serbian case, it was, it was, uh, for example, there was no rivalry, practical rivalry on the ground between Serbian and Greek organization, but between Serbian and Bulgarian, Greek and Bulgarian, it was, it was really, really strong. And often the Ottoman security forces responded after the conflicts, after the, after the, after the, you know, the different kind of encounters between these two organizations, between these three organizations. So at the end, what was very interesting, even the Ottomans resolved to this paramilitarization and they started to create their own paramilitaries hmm. when the young Turks, when the young Turks took the power in the Ottoman Empire, in one moment they realized that the best way for to influence their own people, their own potential supporters among their own people, that, that means uh, ethnic Turks and uh, Slavic-speaking Muslims in the Balkans, which practically constituted at that time nearly 50% of the population. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the only way which they saw uh, that they could actually implement was their own paramilitarization. So in, in one moment, you actually see that some of the young Turks leader, like Niazi Bey, are actually going around visiting uh, villages, uh, talking uh, to the people, uh, because these people already recognized that Bulgarians and Greeks are doing the same way. So in a way, uh, the, even the Ottomans resolved to this kind of this kind of uh, I don't know I don't know how to call it popular action actually, kind of mobilizing their own people. But it came in a way too late because already 1912 you have uh, you have the first and 1913 the second Balkan War and practically you know the Ottoman rule uh, in Europe was uh, finished you know at that time. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Demeter Tasic, author of Paramilitarism in the Balkans. You can find more information on his page on academia.edu. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. Did, did the Ottomans engage in any kind of uh, brutality or oppression that that spurred more yeah. paramilitarism? Well, it definitely didn't. Uh, it, it definitely was not uh, efficient against it. I don't know to, to what extent the, uh, to what extent it uh, spurred it, but in 1903, uh, despite despite the um, there was an uprising in today's Macedonia. Mm -hmm. Uh, the leaders of IMRO, of Internal Macedonian Revolution Organization, uh, there was there was a little bit there was a dispute among them uh, about should should they engage in open confrontation with the Ottoman state. The that group uh, which uh, was in favor of it prevailed, so they organized an uprising which was unsuccessful, 
and was brutally quelled after just 10 days. Uh, a huge number of, of villages were destroyed. A lot of civilians were, were killed. Uh, I, even, I even mentioned uh, the, the numbers. And a lot of people, what is very important, also were displaced and they were forced to leave either to the other parts of Macedonia, either to, the, to Greece, to Bulgaria, to Serbia. Uh, it had a strong, uh, strong impact on, on local community there. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it was kind of kind of warning to the to the to the organizations, every organization that the uprising is practically out of the question in the future because it didn't bear any result. Mm-hmm. So and of course, the Ottoman army dealt with it as any any army would deal with it was like you know brutal force you know quelling the uh, uprising and you know burning villages you know uh, follow up of course you know violence uh, was very well you know known and expected in a way mm. so uh, so in, in a way it, it it didn't it didn't stop but i can i i can say that it didn't spur up uh, more just it, it they just had to adapt the new circumstances and to to maintain just a you know guerrilla style presence on the ground mm-hmm. how did these paramilitaries um get their weapons and gear oh yeah they, they were provided with weapons and gear and everything by their uh sponsoring organization in a way and states which often you know were sponsoring this, these organizations you know you know in their country so uh, that was that was the main way of of uh, procuring weapons and uh, at that time it was kind of very difficult to to transport it you know because you know you need you need a lot of pack horses you know to to to, to you know to, to, to transport like 200 rifles you know so the the rifles you know the, the repeating rifles were their main main uh, weapon of choice you know and the only practically you know and they they were mostly provided by the state and and of course these this uh, search for weapon was one of the most frequent actions of the for example, Ottoman regular forces in in, in Macedonia and uh, Yugoslav regular forces after the war, and especially especially for example in the region of Kosovo, where you had uh, you have a very strong tradition of bearing firearms, mm-hmm. which practically you know mandated that every every male uh, every male head when it's come when you know when he's becoming the state you know the sign of manhood was you know repeating rifle which his father will buy for him or I don't know what what to do so most so the the procurement of, of weapon and uh, munition was they depended on the state support to mm. the great extent was ammunition easy to get or was that also difficult to procure oh yeah also it was difficult to procure and that's why they were also all the time you know posing in these uh, bandoliers because you know okay. you had to carry on your the whole you know Munition which you, which you needed, so they they also had you know difficulties with them. Not difficulties, but you know, uh, it was equally equally you know uh, demanding to to transport this. In one moment, it it proved even even more demanding because you know they started to uh, distribute weapons to the to the villages. You know? So, for example, every organization village organization. Uh, were, 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 for example, given uh, some quantity of, of rifles, which peasants had to use sometimes, not all times, to support the bands which were, for example, located in their vicinity. For example, if they were pressed by the Ottoman 
forces or the rival organization, you know, the local peasants also uh, had to support them with, with their own with their own rifle, and those rifles were often given by the organization. So the the question of the armament was really, really important, and that is that is also how you you can project your power. If you are able to provide uh, more weapons than the rivals, mm -hmm. that means that you are you are you know you are you are forced to be reckoned with. You know. Mm -hmm. So let's turn to uh, how you did your research. Um, what what resources did you use for for this? For the most of part, I used the archival resources here in Belgrade, and uh, also I went to Skopje in, in Macedonia and in Sofia in Bulgaria. Bulgaria was uh, stay stay in Sofia was very very productive in the way of uh, sources because the Bulga state of Bulgarian archives is somewhat better than the Yugoslav archives because of. Because during the First World War and Second World War, the, Bulgar the territory of Bulgaria didn't see much destruction, so the most of the records were preserved. You know, unlike unlike in in Yugoslav case where you have huge uh, gaps because of because of the events, especially in Second World War, both uh, Nazi bombing of Belgrade and Allied bombing of Belgrade, Belgrade, and you know this kind of random destruction of you know of of, of documents. But in Bulgarian case, uh, there there is also a um, large number of memoirs of these uh, so-called komitaji leaders, hmm. huge number of memoirs which are both published and now they're, they're, they can be found online and they're shown to be very useful for this specific topic. And in Yugoslavia, I mostly, in Yugoslav, uh, Yugoslav records, we have here in Belgrade the archive of Yugoslavia. I use mostly the, the, the records of the Ministry of Interior, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you know, uh, and this this type of uh, state ministries, which were dealing uh, directly with with this kind of this kind of threat. Hmm. Did Did you find any? Um, was there any need to visit any of the areas you write about, or to talk about maybe the children or grandchildren of any of these people? Oh, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, these people were in the uh, uh, during the twenties. These people were already around their forties. You mm. know, that it is very you know. Then the main problem which you which we have as researcher here in these areas, especially in in Yugoslavia, for Yugoslavia, this today Serbia and uh, Bulgaria, is the you know this kind of discontinuity. Which was uh, which was imposed by by the communist regimes after the Second World War. Mm. So even even uh, so, and for example, all of these people were practically uh, pushed aside, if not if not silenced, you know, because because of their participation in these events. Because some of them some of them were seen as you know deeply, how how can I say you know non-progressive you know uh, um, anti-communist whatever so this kind of this kind of tradition was totally uh, became matter of private private you know space which often which often meant nearly to be forgotten you you even today for example in the Balkans you have the grandchildren of those people who are not aware of their Grand, grand, great grand, uh, grandfather's, you know, achievements or whereabouts, 
often researchers are they know better details from their life because they were able to you know to see some documents than their grandchildren hmm. so it is it is very very difficult to speak there is no there is no family legacy yes from time to time uh, some photo might pop up or some short excerpt expert or excerpt of diary but you know uh, it is it is it is really 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 uh, kind of difficult in Bulgarian case it is a bit easier because of this uh, because because of the materials which they published and in in Sofia even today you have this you can say non-governmental organization called uh, uh, Macedonian Scientific Institute which actually is um, dedicated to you know to to commemorating to you know this memory of of, of internal Macedonian revolution organization their endeavors hmm. in Serbia for example you do not have this kind of this kind of uh, uh, neither organization neither neither you know association because after the 1945 all veterans associations which were you know, existed in the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, were disbanded, and uh, you know they were forbid to to exist. Uh, you know, in 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 communist regime. So mm-hmm. one of them was, of course, the Chetnik Association, which you know, uh, and the name of the name of Chetnik uh, uh, became very notorious and very because of the Second World War events when you actually had this Yugoslav Chetnik movement, which was in a way. Although it began as anti-fascist movement, it ended up in collaboration with, you know, with, with Italians and, 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 and the Germans hmm. occupying Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. So it, it, is, it is rather, in the Yugoslav case, it is rather difficult. In Albania case, it is even more difficult because those people who were members of paramilitaries at that time, by rule, were illiterate. So hmm. they didn't leave any kind of, you know, Notes, memoirs, you know, diaries, nothing whatsoever. You can find fragments about them in some other people' memories, you know, and it is very, you know, it's kind of sad and difficult for the researchers to encounter these kind of difficulties, you know, on the ground. Mm-hmm. What part of the research was most enjoyable? Uh, well, r- r- the most enjoyable part was. Uh, reading uh, police reports, for example, Yugoslav police reports after the war, and then when you actually find the the matching event in someone uh, someone else's diary or memoirs, mm-hmm. and so actually uh, you are you you are able to to see what was the reaction of both on both sides, you know, mm-hmm. on, on on the same event. That was that was something which was very very you know you can say fulfilling in a way for a researcher you know mm-hmm. what did you find that was most surprising to you well um the most surprising for me thing was that uh, how in a way uh, all of these paramilitaries uh, managed to most of them of course some of them didn't you know but they simply get, get got out of the equation because of that they were able to accommodate themselves with 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 the state institution or in state support or to become so so depending on 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 the state support that they actually uh in a way abandoned this kind of uh, revolutionary ideas which they had because their their idea was 
national revolution, you know, the, the you know the creation of the national state, uh, creation of the nation state, you know, whatever. But in a way, after the First World War, they manage most of them manage to accommodate themselves, you know. So either either through this in Yugoslav case, Serbian case, this kind of veteran associations, or even even further to to enter the party membership of the ruling parties and then to you know to you know enjoy all of the benefits of you know of this of this world especially in, in terms of uh, quick getting rich and corruption everything or in bulgaria how they actually managed to depend on the state uh, maybe not that in that much support by the by the, but the, the fact that state was too weak to impose its rule of law so they actually give them practically you know their the, the entire part of their territory to rule uh, on their own mm-hmm. and and also um, this how can i say um surprise surprised me uh, what what surprised me about this uh, their personal strength because uh, for example some of these people managed to live up to the 1960s Mm. Uh, and they they lived in very difficult circumstances. For example, when they were paramilitaries, they were on twenty four seven on the ground. They slept, you know, in the open air. They they used to walk a lot. They 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 were all, almost always on the verge of of famine because you know sometimes you could not get food, you know. For, but nevertheless, it didn't affect it didn't affect them that much in in a way of their physical condition. So they were able to demonstrate strong, you know, um, activism, and they had this kind of energy of for activism. After the First World War, during the mid-war period, some of them were very active during the Second World War. There, there is an example of the one Serbian paramilitary who he left the country in 1941 when the Germans occupied it. You know, he went to the Middle East then back to the Constantinople, and he created an intelligence network because he used his own contacts, you know, because most of the, many of the Turks and the Albanians and, uh, and Slavic-speaking Muslims from these areas during the 20s and 30s emigrated to the, to the Republic of Turkey. Mm-hmm. And uh, he managed to, to, to get with, in touch with them and to organize intelligence network, which was providing information for the allied forces, uh, allied embassies, allied intelligence services there, you know, throughout the war. It was it was amazing. And then after the war, he returned back to Yugoslavia and lived on, until 1963. So he was like 80 hmm. when, he, when he died, which for that time was really long. Hmm. So it, it is amazing how this whole generation of people which was born around... 80, 1980, end of the 70s, the beginning of the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, demonstrated this high, high, very strong will for 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 activism, either in this case paramilitary, in, in any any kind of activism. They were simply they cannot they were not able to sit still. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, is, it is it is amazing. For example, there was there is a very very prominent name among the Serbian paramilitaries before before the First World War, uh, who was a Bosniak, who was Muslim from Bosnia, but he joined the, the Serbian cause in Macedonia. Mm-hmm. And after the after the sec, after the First World War, because he was uh, 
frustrated by the fact that the Serbian uh, politicians and uh, Serbian prince at the time, they practically annihilated the secret organization Black Hand during the First World War in, in Salonika, and the leader of the Black Hand, uh, Colonel Dragutin Dmitrievich Apis, was sentenced to death and shot. And this guy, Mustafa Golubic, was, uh, after that incident, he practically changed side. He joined the international communist movement, he joined the Bolsheviks, and he was one of the very important Comintern operatives in Western Europe, and even today we do not know uh, exactly, you know, the Soviet records, Russian records has to be, you know, so about his endeavors mm. there. He was, you know, he he was he participated in several very important actions of the Soviet intelligence in France. They even connect him, connecting with the assassination of Trotsky, because. Interestingly, in the same time, during the same time when Trotsky was in Mexico and he was, uh, he also stayed in a hotel two blocks away at the time when Trotsky was killed. So, you know, too much, too much coincidence, you know. Mm. So these guys were, when, when you see their life record, you know, and then, uh, then he was captured by the Gestapo in 1941 in Belgrade and tortured. Brutally tortured, uh, he didn't give uh, give uh, any information to to Gestapo, and he was shot at the end. You know, mm. <laughs> yeah. So this kind of this kind of personal trajectories are something which came out as a not a surprise, but not but something which for, demands more, 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 more research. You know, and this is something which I I would I would probably like to 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 pursue in future. You know, because. Uh, for these people, you know, I think that relevant documents could be found. We just need to take time and to see how the situation will develop, especially with, in the terms of with the Russian archives, and because it's really, you know, the Russian archives are um, very, you have limited access there. You know? mm -hmm. So despite the um, the hardships that they endured, I also have this idea perhaps um, – because of movies and novels that, you know, during their off times, I can imagine these groups sitting around and having, you know, beers and, you know, socializing, you know, like without hi hierarchical divisions, you know, did they have any kind of, was there any kind of social club element to this or were they just um, hardened fighters? Oh, no, no, definitely there was social club. Element, especially during winters, because during winters they they did not stay on the ground. Mm -hmm. Before the First World War, they did not stay on the ground, so they usually would withdraw, you know, to the you know territories of Serbia, Bulgaria, and Greece. And then during winters, you can say you can say they they had their own places where they used to go. Probably in that times they used to used to you know make some new plans. And for after the First World War, definitely uh, in in Serbian case. The veteran association played an important role, and in Bulgarian case, the the fact that they always could retreat to the Bulgarian territory and there, they enjoy they enjoyed this kind of refuge. Also, uh, let us not forget, uh, most lot of these people had their own families, so they also their families used to stay in the safe, you know. So they they probably you know so during during the winter months, you know, they would probably stay with their families, but. This social aspect is very, very important. They, uh, by the rule, they were not hiding. 
when they were staying in Serbia and Greece, in, in, in Bulgaria, they were out, they were free out. And that's, in a way, I think that that was one of the reasons how did they actually gain some kind of popularity among people, because, you know, everyone was showing them, you know, look, this is, you know, this is this guy, you know, he's defending, you know, our cause in, in the Ottoman Empire, or he's defending our cause in cause in Yugoslavia, you know, he's fighting against, you know, Serbian gendarmes, or, I don't know, this is the guy who is fighting the Bulgarian Komitadri in Macedonia, you know, look at these guys. So, and especially they all, they all like, you know, to, to wear their, you know, attire out, you know, and uh, practically to, 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 to show, to show off in a way. You know. mm. It was very, it, it is kind of this macho thing, which is common mm. for these people, you know. Yeah. Was there, um, I, I know with history, you always have unanswered questions, but was there a particular question that you really dug into and took a while to get an answer to, or maybe you still don't have an answer that you're happy with? One thing which 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 needed the role of Albanian paramil- paramilitaries uh, in, in Yugoslavia after the First World War was not difficult to dig in because they were because they were very active. You had you have lots of reports, especially police reports. You have state measures, everything, but you don't have their own. You, you don't have, as I said, you don't have their own, their their voice. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't leave anything, you know. So in a way, it, it is difficult to to see how how this how this thing developed in their minds, their heads. You know, what were their motivations? You, we, you can guess, pretty much sure. Mm-hmm. But you, unfortunately, because there there are no documents, uh, personal documents, memories, memories, mm-hmm. we we are deprived of their own of their own, you know, uh, picture of their own, you know. Uh, experience of it that is something and in in serbian in yugoslav case as i mentioned these gaps in documents because for example in ministry of interior you you have uh, for example complete years without uh, any documents and, and you're sure you know that there's something that there was there was something on the ground mm-hmm. you know that there were uh, fightings, everything, but you know you cannot find you cannot find uh, the Roman documents. Thank God, this is for the periods afterwards. But for the my for my periods, I mostly had clear picture in way of chronology. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1990, 1990 was you know disputable because it was the first year of you know of this new state of uh, Yugoslav state of its infancy, you know. So it was still you know consolidating. But nevertheless, you have you have the clear picture. But after that, it will be difficult to continue with this story with with so many so huge gaps in, in chronological chronological terms. You know, mm-hmm. was there anything you found that had a strong emotional impact on you, either positively or negatively? Well, mostly mostly it was related to their to to personalities of these people. Mm-hmm. Their to their to their. Uh, how can you say strength, uh, both physical and mental, and how they cope with some some events. You know, when when one of them is talking about uh, when that he heard that his uh, wife and his uh, uh, four children were taken into the camps, you know, and that uh, his father was killed on his you know doorstep, and then in the next sentence he continues his 
what was his, you know, continue with, with description of what what he was doing in exile, because th- these are the news which he heard may probably like months after, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and when, when you see how he doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't spend much, much uh, time time on it. And then, then in one moment after several, I don't know, pages, it comes 1918, uh, he, he returns to his village and then he waits for three, four months for his wife to show up because she was released from the camps where two of her, of their four children died, you know. Mm. So it was kind of, and, you know, okay, yeah, let, we are, let, yeah, I write down this fact and now we continue with our life. So what what is for today, for today's people would be devastating something. For those people was something which was, you know, integral part of their life, which is very, very, like, striking, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, apart from uh, filling the historical record, um, what do you hope the book will do? Well, my my intention from the beginning was to somehow to to, to, this, to this book to contribute to the comparative aspect of the Balkan histories, because unfortunately, because of the strong nationalisms which exist exist or existed here, you had this kind of. Uh, through the most of the previous decades, you have this kind of parochial, self-contempt view on history without any in-depth view or knowledge of what what happened on the other side. Mm-hmm. And this is something which I think will contribute to the you know to overcoming this shortcoming of of, of lack of comparative approach. In, in, in the Balkans, especially in, in and now, I can say also in former Yugoslavia, because you know, at least during Yugoslav times, you had this kind of Yugoslav historiography. Now you have seven separated historiographies, you know, because of this dissolution of the state. Mm-hmm. But uh, in case of the of, of of the Balkans, the only thing which can actually give some, I, from my humble opinion, uh, you know, lasting lasting result is comparative approach because of so much similarities which exist which exist within you know within the Balkans between the Balkan society between the Balkan nations between the Balkan you know ethnicities mm-hmm. did you have any difficulties getting the book uh, finished or published well you know the the, the, the main difficulties was my personal lack of uh, sufficient you know, knowledge of you know literally English language you know that is mm-hmm. so but I thank God I had you know help of several several colleagues you know which were so kind with these difficult times because you know to to help me with with you know comments uh, with proofreading at the end you know so so in the in this in in this particular aspect it was kind of difficult but I it, I I never how can I say it never stopped me to go further, you know, because I, I, I was open enough, you know, and they were kind enough to also to, to offer their, to offer their, you know, support for that. So that was the, the major, major problem, you know, in a way from, from me. I, I, everything else was, went pretty smooth, especially with. So you were, you got cut off. Um, you were saying, you were talking about being able to finish the book and then you said, especially, and then it cut off right there. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I was mentioning how, you know, it is difficult to write in English, you know, where I'm not a native speaker, you know. So, but 
thankfully I had the support of my friends and colleagues who, when I, when everything finished, you know, were were you know kind enough to look through it, you know, to suggest, to comment, to correct, to proofread. So in a way, that's that's great. You know, I I had a great support from them and also from Oxford University Press because they are great professionals, you know, and they they really don't leave any detail, you know, left, you know, without checking and, you know, and and uh, commenting and, uh, of course, you know, f from, you know, uh, reaction from me as an author. So they, they did a great job also. Did you have any trouble getting it accepted by by them as a publisher? Did you have to go to a few or was that a simple process? No, it, it uh, yeah, it, it went through reviews, you know, and uh, reviews were favorable, uh, which some comments, you know, and suggestions which I followed. So after that, you know, it was pretty much easy. And the good thing that it it, it, it fitted into their existing edition of, uh, you know, The Greater War. So it practically, I think, it contributed to this topic in a way. Okay. Um, what's your current writing project or a future one? Well, future future one would be I'm I'm now you know trying to to, to put it together uh, something which is not connected closely to to this in a way, but it is connected with the region. Uh, it would be the it would be the project related to the Yugoslav People's Army, the the army of the socialist Yugoslavia. But in the so more more broadly into their its social context, you know, mm. how this multinational army was created, how it worked, uh, while it failed, and what were the, the the everyday consequences, you know, of of living, you know, as as an army member, as a member of the family of of the you know of the army, or or, or even as simple conscript, you know, so. Something along that lines, but also in this time, I would like to also to make a comparative comparison, for example, with Czechoslovak army because it is the within this East European context, a part of the Soviet Union. You know, it was the only we can say multinational army also. So it, it would be it would be interesting to see, you know, how how it works. So this is one 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 thing which I would like to go to to do, and the second one which is to chronologically continue with this whole issue of the not not only the Balkan paramilitarism especially but how the, you know the mid-war Yugoslavian Bulgarian societies in in, in terms of with, with, how did they dealt with with this with this with this whole uh, you know phenomenon because uh, for example there is also one important thing to say you know which I didn't say you know one of the, one of the things which after the first world war existed there was also these newcomers, uh, one were the veterans of the Russian Civil War, so the former Bolsheviks who started to return back to the region, mm -hmm. and the other were their enemies, their opponents, the white Russian emigrants, who, uh, who came en masse uh, in both Yugoslavia and Bulgaria because both countries uh, were very, you know, close to them both by you know because of the language because of the religion because of the proximity to the soviet union especially yugoslav state because yugoslav state was throughout its existence as a mid-war yugoslav kingdom was you know strongly opposed to you know to bolshevik ideology and uh, it never it didn't recognize the soviet union until 1940 
so it was you know supporting you know the the cause of the white Russians you know greatly so and they also brought their own military and paramilitary you know structures you know there and they also participated especially in Bulgaria as as you know in these uh, turbulent events in 1923 in uh, coup d'etat in June and in a revolutionary attempt by the communists in 19 in September they also participated you know with their own force there against of course the the, the communists and uh, the agrarians mm. and in Yugoslavia they they managed to to preserve their military structures during throughout the 20s and 30s uh, you know we, you could easily see the Russian imperial general in the, his full outfit in in Belgrade mm. Can people find you, or do you have a website or or on social media where people can find your work? Yeah, yeah, I have an i i have a i have a my personal presentation on Academia Edu, mm -hmm. and there I have you. They can see what are what what is I, I also presented some of my my pieces, mostly articles which I can you know, put there because some, some, there are some, for some things, there are limitations, mm -hmm. but most, most of my, my works are accessible there. Mm -hmm. Most of them are in Serbian, never, but also there are some English in English and in, in, in some other languages. So that is it. I, I also, I have a LinkedIn, but it's in academic, ter in academic terms. LinkedIn is not that important as academia I do. And, uh, it's really, it's really good to have, to have you know, your own personal presentation there. You know, mm -hmm. that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure. Oh, okay, yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if possible. I have many other options as well to get great military history information. You can find links to interesting military history videos on my Facebook page, War Scholar. You can find links to interesting military history news articles, military history archaeology information, and academic information on my Twitter page, War Scholar. You can find photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar. You can find my military history videos on my YouTube page, War Scholar 1945. You can also sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post additional video and news links, as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. Thank you for listening.